there's this incredible counter narrative that can be written. Often we have seen that female artists uh, are among the first to work with new technologies as they come out. For example, in the late 60s and early 70s, some of the first artists working with uh, portable video cameras were women. So these are cameras like the Sony Port-a-Pack, and they allowed women to actually make work without a ton of equipment, um, without a studio, outside of institutions. And they also didn't necessarily have to engage with kind of this weighty history or canon of male artists working in the medium because the medium was so new. Hello, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Michelle Herman, Head of Digital Experience. And I'm Jennifer Snyder. I work as the oral history archivist. Support for this podcast comes from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. The rise of computers and digital technology is often described as a disruption of humanity, irrevocably altering our social and political dynamics, as well as our fundamental relationship with the world. But the history of technology as we know it today is a bit more complicated. As human tools, knowledge, and expression have evolved together, artists have been at the forefront of experimentation. And in this episode, we will explore how women have advanced and nuanced our conceptions of art and technology. We will also discuss the issues of visibility, representation, and accessibility that women continue to face in these arenas. From mavericks in programming, software, and coding to vanguard video artists, women's work has always been creating the future. In 1843, English mathematician Ada Lovelace translated a paper on a theoretical computational machine called the Analytical Engine, which was designed by the English mathematician Charles Babbage. During the translation process, Lovelace added her own ideas via annotations, seeing the potential for the device beyond simple calculations to complex sequencing and even musical composition. Though only a small portion of the machine was ever built, Lovelace's forethought resulted in what is considered the first complete computer program, making her the first computer programmer. We spoke about this history with Christiane Paul, professor of media studies at the New School and adjunct curator of digital art at the Whitney Museum of American Art. I actually just have to jump back in time centuries you know, and, of course, point to Ada Lovelace, uh, daughter of Lord Byron and Countess of Lovelace, born in 1815, who really was a pioneer in mathematics and computing, the computer language Ada is actually named after her. And I always found it funny that it was ultimately her mother, Lady Byron, who wanted to prevent that she would turn out like her dad and become a romantic poet who encouraged her study of mathematics because she thought that would counteract the poetic impulse. Yeah. Well, Lovelace's work would change everything that came after, her knowledge and insight were rooted in the technology of her time. In her notes on Luigi Menabrea's article, she wrote, The analytical engine weaves algebraic patterns as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. The jacquard loom used a punch card system to enable sophisticated designs with less human intervention, and that punch card system inspired computing designs for centuries to come. 
The thread from weaving and textiles to computer programming has not been missed by artists. Anne Wilson, a Chicago-based fiber artist known for her conceptual approach to craft, touches on this connection between computers and weaving in her 2012 oral history. I also was myself weaving, and that seemed very, uh, really integral to who I was as a teacher and this sort of emerging um, connections between technologies, uh, the, develop, the emergence of the computer and um, work using the computer and its connection and its zeros and ones uh, to weaving, woven right. structure. This interplay between weaving and technology animates Senga Nangudi's 2007 video installation, Warp Trance. Nangudi, an artist who uses sculpture, video, and performance to examine womanhood and blackness, describes installing the work at the Fabric Workshop in her 2013 oral history. We had Raina Andrews, who works as the archivist for the Loose Collecting Initiative, read the following excerpt from Nengudi's oral history. In addition to shooting footage of the machines at work, I also collected old jacquards that I sewed together to use as projection screens because I wanted to add something sculptural and three-dimensional to the piece. Their addition brings the piece off the flat screen and creates two realities. There is the video projected on the screens, which is spirited and fast-moving, and as the video footage seeps through the open patterns of the jacquards, another more muted, otherworld-like atmosphere is projected onto the back walls. The installation is structured so that participants may walk and dance in front of and then behind the screens to have both experiences. The title, Warp, is related to the weaving process, and trance comes from my experience of feeling like I was in a trance as in mesmerized, while standing before the loom machines as they performed their daily tasks. I wanted to create a piece for others to be so enthralled, to be taken with the color, rhythm, and sense of ritual like I was when I was touring the mills. As usual, I wanted people to interact with this piece. I wanted them to be taken with the color and rhythm of it and use the installation space as a place to move and dance in concert with the piece. In weaving, the warp is the name for the strings threaded through the length of the loom that the perpendicular strings, or weft, are woven through. Artists working with textiles have long considered the ways their work encodes, stores, and transmits information, just like computers do. Can we think of this work as an expanded form of programming and processing? Carolyn Maslumi, a quilt maker and fiber artist known for her narrative work that records Black heritage in the United States, even earned a PhD in aerospace engineering while expanding the horizons of textile arts. In her 2002 oral history, Maslumi discusses women's communal tradition of quilting and what she aims to convey in her work. When you think in terms of quilt making, it is basically thought of as woman's art, you know, because this was a, you know, we sat down and communicated with each other over the, you know, quilt frame. And it is the needle that unites us. It's the needle that unites the women of the network. It's that quilting needle that unites the women of the women of color quilters network with other quilters here in the United States. Okay. That's a powerful bond. That art that we share together is a powerful, powerful bond to unite women. But I don't want to forget the special significance of women on the planet. 
is a recurring thing because I feel that women should be celebrated in all facets of our lives. I don't care whether it's the art or, you know, politics, religion or whatever. Women have to be celebrated and lifted up because they have the most important job on the planet, the most influential job on the planet. And you see these recurring themes in my work because I like for young people to young women to see that work, to know that they have power because a lot of times they don't know it. Okay. And they have to be reminded of it. I have this power. Older women have to be reminded that they have this power of influence over all humanity because we as first teachers influence all human beings and every human being on the planet comes through us regardless. It can be the teacher, it can be the president, it can be the doctor, it can be the maid, it's everybody. So that's awesome when you think about influencing all of humanity with your teaching your children. That's power. So they have to be reminded. And what better way than to remind them through these quilts with this woman surrounded by fire and water, the life sign and the sign of, you know, so many trials and tribulations. Women walk through fire every day, every day, every day. They walk through fire every day by virtue of being women and not having so many things, not being privy to education in so many countries, being a part of a workforce that makes or creates 70% of all working hours, but yet owning only a fifth of the world's wealth and being the most undereducated. The world's refugees are mostly women, but yet they have the most important jobs. So sometimes in all their, the, the weight of living on this planet as a woman, we have to be reminded of who we are. So quilts help to serve that purpose of reminding women about their power. The term computer entered the English language in the first half of the 17th century in reference to one who performs calculations, particularly as a profession. Some of the most famous computers include the all-women team of Harvard computers, who calculated astronomical data from the Harvard Observatory from the 1880s to the 1950s, of whom many went on to be significant astronomers and to make major discoveries. During World War II and beyond, women stepped in and up to fill computing positions that covered everything from projectile trajectories to data analyses of potential weaknesses in electric power lines. In the 1950s and 60s, Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Dorothy Vaughn made tremendous contributions to NASA through their work in engineering, computer science, and mathematics 
which was recently depicted in the 2016 film Hidden Figures. Their breakthroughs, in spite of the racist and sexist systems they confronted, are part of a larger story of women's roles in science. Christiane Paul told us about this history. There obviously has been the film Hidden Figures, which brought more attention to the great contributions that Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughan and Mary Jackson have really made to the history of mathematics and the field of uh, science and technology. The fact was, of course, that many of the computing pioneers and the ones who programmed the first digital computers were women. And for decades, the number of women in computer science was uh, growing. I'm thinking of women such as Grace Hopper, who was one of the first programmers of the Harvard Mark I computer, and then Jean Jennings Bartik, of course, who worked on the ENIAC. And then in, I think, 1984, or that's what most researchers say, something really changed because the number of women in computer science really uh, flattened and then plunged. And in the early days, the stereotype was hardware are men, software are women. Women were the ones really involved in the coding of uh, software. And then the nature of computer science departments really began to change for various reasons. I think there was the systematic creation of a specific kind of culture that pushed women out and ultimately uh, made them not want to be part of it anymore. I think that is one of the problems that computer science is still facing now. You know, they actually need more women. One cause of the decline of women entering computer science was a wave of discouragement against women entering at the corporate or university level. In the rapidly evolving post-war knowledge economy, companies sought to streamline and optimize their hiring practices through new screening processes. In 1966, System Development Corporation, the first software development company, hired psychologists William Cannon and Dallas Perry to develop a vocational interest scale based on approximately 1,300 interviews they had conducted with engineers, 87% of whom were men. Unsurprisingly, this poor data sampling led to skewed results, but they published their findings with the suggestion that computer programmers were marked by three traits, love of problem-solving, love of varied activities, and a disinterest in human contact. The Cannon-Perry results created a bottleneck at the entryway of the computer sciences, with results that linger today. Eager to guide students towards majors, universities also relied on the aptitude test and similar versions that guided women or anyone who expressed an interest in human contact, towards other vocations. Despite systematic efforts to deter women from careers in technology, women artists have continued to innovate, experiment, and assert themselves. Nancy Burson has been a leader in digital art since the 1980s, notably with her breakthrough composites, a series of photographic-based portraits that Burson manipulated with software she developed. This computer image morphing software not only anticipated today's image generation machines and the ubiquity of image altering software, but it was also a tool for forensic investigations and age up software. In her later work, such as Age Machine, Burson developed software that could digitally age a person's face. In her 2017 oral history, Martha Wilson, a feminist artist and gallery director based in New York, walked through the evolution of Burson's work and its real-world applications. I know Nancy Burson, 
who's the artist who developed software to show what Eitan Potts, who disappeared in Soho, would look like the next year. He disappeared and we couldn't find his body. Nobody knew what had happened. So she, she created software so we could see what he would look like at the age of seven, the age of eight, the age of nine. And then she developed it further so that we could turn ourselves into Andy Warhol or into Elvis Presley. And then she further developed the software so that she could create a composite portrait of every woman in the world based on racial numbers. Christiane Paul told us more about Burson's legacy in both the history of art and the history of technology. So Nancy Burson was among the pioneers in the field of computer-generated composite photographs. And she made a major contribution to the development of a technique that is known as morphing. So the transformation of an image into another through composite imagery. And this is now commonly used by law enforcement uh, agencies to age or alter uh, facial structures of missing persons or suspects. So Nancy Burson actually patented in 1981 something called the method and apparatus for producing an image of a person's face at a different age. And that patent became the basis for morphing technology for the entire computer graphics industry. And it is very important and interesting that you bring up GANs in this context, generative adversarial networks, which artists use so much in digital art focusing on artificial intelligence right now. So process being you basically feed the algorithm or the AI this data set, then task it with something, and then it tries to achieve that task by processing imagery and um, actually is being judged in that process and has to generate always better results. And what is interesting here is that the aesthetics of what GANs are producing are very close to the composites that Nancy Burson or Lillian Schwartz did in the 80s. Those generative adversarial networks or GANs that Paul described are a machine learning method for generating new content based on and in line with existing data. They can even be the basis for deepfake videos. New experiments in videography build on the foundations laid by trailblazers like Joan Jonas, a video pioneer who described her entry into the field in her 2017 oral history. Well, I, brought, I bought a port-a-pack in Japan. I brought the port-a-pack back with me. And I didn't perform with it for another two years, but I immediately set it up in my loft and began to work with the closed-circuit system, the camera, the monitor, myself, and looking at myself, seeing myself. For many artists, that was a major breakthrough experience and a major point of transition. And I immediately began to work with it in my law. So all the time that I was doing these outdoor pieces and Corimania, I had that camera 
in my studio. And I was sitting, often sitting in front of the camera, looking at myself on the monitor. That space was the space of the monitor, the space in which I was sitting, immediately around the monitor myself, the camera. Do you see what I mean? And the small props. So it became the frame of the camera, of the, the way the camera framed my actions. So I was looking at the monitor and seeing what it looked like to hold up a piece of lace in front of the camera over my face, for instance. I don't, I don't think I did that, actually. So that was very much, and it, and it continued to be about the space of the camera, what it framed, the space of the monitor. What is that? The space of the projection and those relationships. And the movement all had to do with that, all the movement. So the movement was very concrete. It was moving in the frame. It was moving in relation to the camera, moving in relation to the projection. So I set up the video camera in my loft and in 1970 when I came back. And I didn't do a piece in public until, for two years, until two years later, when I figured out what to do, because I had to figure out how to use it in a performance. So as I remember, I had the idea for my first, quote, video performance. Actually, Saul Lewitt, I made a performance in my loft for Saul Lewitt's class. He asked if he could bring his class to my loft. And I did. I made a little performance for him. But my idea for the performance was, um, some, I'd read someplace that somebody was watching um, Marilyn Monroe being filmed. And they were very interested in the fact that it looked one way when they were watching her being filmed. And then it looked completely different in the film, which they could see later or they could see I don't know, somehow. But that interested me, that it would look one way live, and then as it was being filmed by the camera, it would look another way. So that's how I got the idea of working um, with video in my performances. So the camera would pick up my actions, and the audience would see everything that was going on. And then they'd see the result in the either projection or the monitor. When I first got the video camera, my main idea of dealing with it was to always compare it to a film camera to the technology of film. So everything I thought of in relation to the video, I thought, what is the difference? What is peculiar to video and different from film? And um, one of which is the light meters, the space, the vertical roll. All these ideas came out of thinking in that way. What can I do with the video camera? And so in general, and this slowly developed in this way, I thought of the first manifestation was this performance. I just got a uh, two sawhorses, a big four-by-eight-foot piece of plywood, and I, made, I put it, made a table, and I had objects that belonged to me, a little collection of things that my grandmother belonged to my grandmother, a little woolen French doll, a set of fans, that she, she had a collection of fans, rocks, mirrors. Of course, I continued to think in terms of the mirror, and I thought of the video, the whole setup being an ongoing mirror, that's what I called it. It was a mirror of my um, activities. And then, of course, I thought how to frame and how to make images for the camera. So there, were, there was the performance. The Sony Portapack was the first portable video camera and one of the most impactful innovations for contemporary art. Its size enabled artists to experiment with the medium in new, unexpected ways and spaces and its affordability meant that many more artists could make use of it. We spoke with Marina Easegro, Associate Curator of Media and Performance Art, 
at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden about what this innovation meant. There's this incredible counter narrative that can be written. Often we have seen that female artists uh, are among the first to work with new technologies as they come out. For example, in the late 60s and early 70s, some of the first artists working with uh, portable video cameras were women. So these are cameras like the Sony Port-a-Pack, and they allowed women to actually make work without a ton of equipment, um, without a studio, outside of institutions. Um, and they also didn't necessarily have to engage with kind of this weighty history or canon of male artists working in the medium because the medium was so new. Another early innovator of video art, Dara Birnbaum, challenged depictions of women in popular culture through the young medium. Her iconic work, Technology Transformation Wonder Woman, was painstakingly edited on the first video editing machines known as linear editors. These machines hardly resemble the drag-and-drop interfaces of today's video software, as they required the editor to record small segment by small segment from start to finish one videotape to another. If the editor slipped up and discovered they recorded something out of sequence, the process had to begin all over again. In her 2017 oral history, Dara Birnbaum tells interviewer Linda Yablonski about how she edited Technology Transformation Wonder Woman while she was teaching at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. I, I was teaching media. It was the first time they were teaching media. Uh, a new course is what it meant, a new course something new to look at that wasn't being taught yet. But Dan did a year for Nova Scotia. He didn't want to be up there a year. They asked him to. And so he divided that year into something like five different people would cover. And he got Michael Asher was one person. Uh, Jenny Holzer was another. Martha Rossler. And I'm not sure of Jenny, to be honest. I brought Jenny up. Martha Rossler came in. And I came in, and they liked me. I had a lot of energy. And they said, would you like to take over next year and reformulate or formulate what will become what we might call a media, you know, and a kind of guest lecture series that would go with that? The agreement was that I could stitch this class and structure together and I was up there, let's say, three weeks and back down here three weeks and, and up there five, et cetera. During that time, I could use the equipment up there after hours. And that's where I edited Wonder Woman. I'm actually getting not sure if it was already cassette or open reel. Whatever it was, we had no time-based code, time code that was going on. So making seven-frame edit, you know, like for the explosions that are like pum, 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 pum. That, I almost put my hand through the wall one night. You know, it was so hard to do. And yet I was obsessed to do it. Or getting her just to twist and turn back and forth and back and forth was hard. And one night when I was working, I'd have the radio on and heard come. I didn't know what I was doing with it. I did all the picture work. And then I thought, it needs something else. It needs something else. But I don't know what that is. Coming through the radio was the song Wonder Woman and Disco Land Band. And it was done by a group called Wonder Woman and Disco Land Band um, players and on Hippopotamus Records. So at that time, clubs were doing disco. So I searched all over to get this one record, the only record ever brought out by the Wonder Woman, you know, the Wonder Woman and Disco Land Band. 
and it had an A and a B side. And the A side was the American version, and the B side was the European version. And I mixed the two and made the soundtrack. And that's the soundtrack to it. And then I did the character generator down here in New York. But if it says, I'm your Wonder Woman, I'll take you down, when it goes like, ooh, ah, that's the European version. So then that wasn't on the American version. No, that wasn't oh, on the American version. Yeah, like that. I, I, I'll make the axis fall. I didn't use that. That was European version. That was our version. I didn't use our version for that. I'll, I'll you know, take it back to rule the world. Didn't use that. But I'll take you down. I'll show you all the power I possess. And ooh, ah, make sweet music to you. A lot of the ooh and ah was the European. And um, I just thought I've got it. Now I've got it. Some artists, like early video artist Mary Lucier, found the methodical process of tape-to-tape editing to be a powerful way to focus on the storytelling aspects of the work. Lucier reflects on this process with Judith Richards in her 2011 oral history. When I learned to edit, and I taught myself, of course, basically, uh, I was using tape, and I would have to log every minute of that tape, I would look at it, I'd draw a little picture, I don't have any of that material here, I'd draw a little picture, describe it, write down the time code, if I was working with time code, if I was so fortunate at that time, describe it, the sound, and do that for every piece, every scene that was shot. So, so I would have logs for some pieces that a few inches thick, and uh, but then I would take those and I'd put them onto index cards. And then I'd start shuffling the index cards around and I was able to get rid of a lot of material. This is without even touching the tape again. Then finally, one day came when I would have all these cards lined up. So you three channel piece, boom, 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 you know, synchronized in three rows down a page or down a, a big piece of cardboard where I would attach these uh, index cards with pictures. And then I'd start actually making the edit. And, of course, the linear form of editing, it's so hard to find your way around in a a tape. You you might want to put something that's at the very end of a tape next to something that's at the very beginning of the tape, and that's 30 minutes of fast-forwarding or rewinding. But what that did was to really make you think really hard about about the process and what you wanted to follow. What? The storytelling aspect. Even if it's not a literal story, the construction of the narrative, if you want to call it that. And so I would have it first on paper, and I could go through, I could run through that and review it in my head so I could see what the edit was going to be. I could visual, pre-visualize it. Throughout the digital revolution, collectives and organizations have grown around the use of new technologies. Experiments in Art and Technology, or EAT, formed in New York City in 1967 with the goal of connecting artists and engineers to explore the potential of art and technology. Julie Martin was a co-founder and director of EAT. In her 2018 oral history interview with Liza Zapol, 
She recounts the formation of EAT and her leadership role. She also describes the struggles with equity and recognition she experienced, especially alongside her then-partner and fellow co-founder of EAT, Billy Kluver. My name is Julie Martin. I mean, currently I'm officially a director of Experiments in Art and Technology, which in fact is a virtual organization, I say. So I remember conversation with Billy and I remember coming back and just extraordinarily excited about the idea that not only would engineers help artists but artists would help engineering and make a change in society so it's this totally idealistic you know now I realize totally utopian but that's what did it I mean I really believed and I was excited about the possibility of not just making art with technology, but of, of affecting change. And the individual, the artist as individual, being able to affect change. And I was hooked. <laughs> and I think it came from a conversation with Billy. Maybe I came out there and we talked about EAT and the ideas. Because I think one of the first, or one of the newsletters is a real statement of, of the ideas and ideology. And I, I mean, I loved it. Sucker for philosophy, right? Once a philosopher, always, <laughs> even if you're a failed, flawed philosopher. But anyway. And I was probably very backward. I was, you know, going into 70 living with Billy and working together. And, and Billy was very much not chauvinist in the sense of working with women. I mean, there may be other things, but you didn't get a sense that he would only give things to the man, for example. That wasn't something I didn't, I wasn't feeling a kind of a, I'm being oppressed. Maybe I was. <laughs> Who knows? Not for me. You know, oh, yeah, not for us to say. Not for us to say. You're asking me how I felt. Yes, I'm asking how you felt. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because now, like the art and technology show at LACMA, where it was solely men. Who you know, and that's yeah, so that's that was really seen now. I mean, I know that that wasn't EAT, but um, no. But it's interesting yeah. why Maurice Tuckman didn't choose women. And I know, for example, that I, I, this is silly, but when when uh, they did when Ponce did Art in Motion, and they did it at Stadelik, and then um, came to uh, Moderna Museum, Billy added two women. Now they're kind of lost because there's no pictures, but he added Marisol and a woman named Gloria Graves, and their pieces were added to the show. He wasn't a crusader for women's rights by any means, but I think he was sort of gender neutral somewhat in, in looking at the world. Christiane Paul weighed in on how lack of recognition acutely affects women artists working with technology. Once again, there have been so many pioneers. The issue to me mostly is that women still tend to be under-recognized, even if you're looking at artist duos today. It's very often the women who are the programmers. I think one of the problems is that women, particularly if they are working in collectives or in collaboration with others, tend not to be recognized as much, although they are the programmers uh, and not the men. So there are a few examples of that, such as the net artists or digital media artists. Jody and Übermorgen, in both cases, it's actually the female part of the duo who is the programmer. 
Julie Martin, of course, was also very influential. And once again, it's the fact that I think her work with Billy Kluver and the fact that they were a couple also contributed maybe a little bit to her dropping out. And he's the one who is mostly associated with EIT at this point. Emerging technologies like virtual reality and artificial intelligence systems are providing new tools for artistic experimentation. One artist who works in these nascent mediums is Laurie Anderson, whose work continually pushes the boundaries of art, performance, music, and film. We spoke to Marina Isgro, curator of the Laurie Anderson exhibition, The Weather, on view at the Hirshhorn Museum from September 24, 2021 to July 31, 2022, about Anderson's work. Uh, I'm the curator of the show Lori Anderson, The Weather, which is Lori's largest U.S. exhibition to date. Um, it includes more than 50 works of art, including over a dozen of which are new and being shown for the first time at the Hirshhorn. So Lori Anderson is a multimedia artist. Um, she really sort of captured the world's attention in the 1970s and 80s with these live performances where she was combining um, storytelling with really innovative uses of technology to produce um, sound and images. She's always been at the forefront when it comes to working with new technology. Um, she helped popularize the use of synthesizers and vocoders in music starting in the 1980s. Um, she was one of the first artists to work with CD-ROM uh, and then with the internet, virtual reality, and most recently she's been working with artificial intelligence. So a couple of years ago, Lori started working with a group called the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, and she worked with them to create essentially an AI um, that was trained on her own writing and on the Bible. And what this AI did was output a book that is sort of the Bible as spoken in Lori Anderson's voice. <laughs> And it's, it's really funny. It's sort of nonsensical, but there are sections that just really do make sense. Um, and so we've excerpted some parts of, of this book, which she calls Scroll in the exhibition. Um, I think it turned out to be a, a thousand page book or something like that. It's very long. While digital and post-digital work might seem removed from touch, artists continue to examine technology as an extension of embodied experience. Even at growing distances and speeds, telecommunication prompts questions about intimacy and bodily presence, and artists like Anderson attune their work to technology's connective and reflexive powers. Here's Marina Isgro again. You know, I've talked about some of the different instruments that Lori has designed that make digital music into a more kind of bodily phenomenon. Um, there's another work in the show called The Handphone Table. This is an early work from the 1970s. Uh, that Lori made for an exhibition at MoMA. And the way this works is it's a wooden table uh, with one chair on either end. Um, there are little divots on either end and you're meant to sit at the table, put your elbows in the divots and then cover your ears with your hands. And when you do that, you actually hear a sound that is being conducted through the table into your body. And so the two people seated at the table are the only ones who can hear it. 
Um, so I think she's doing something really interesting there, both with the body as a conductor of sound, um, and also with this sort of shared experience between two people in a public space. Um, so a lot of her work is like that. It's, it's relational. It's about, you know, social relations or about the body. Lesbian feminist film pioneer Barbara Hammer elaborated on the importance of tactility throughout her films in her 2018 oral history with Svetlana Kitto. I was studying Jung maybe a few years later, but very close to this time, when I realized he identified four areas of intelligence. Intuitive, the intellect, emotional, and sensational. Well, sensational, he didn't mean like a Broadway play. He meant the way sensation can be the leading form of intelligence to a person's own being. Each person has all those forms in them, but each one has a dominant one. Mine was sensation. That means that when I look at something, in the world. I feel it in my body. But in this case, it was touching a woman, looking at a woman's skin and seeing a hand caress it. I can feel it in the audience, in my own body. A more abstract situation might be, and I speak about this with audiences often, describing the sensational. In driving in a car, looking out and seeing a plowed field a farmer's field, nothing growing on it. I can feel that earth and those furrows in my body. I can look at a puff of cotton and feel it, the sharp edges around it. It's very visceral for me. And so I wanted to bring a haptic cinema to the audience. As technology integrates itself into our lives in new ways and new forms, the histories that we trace will grow and change as well. Here's what Marina Isgro had to say about the gender dynamics of institutions and visibility. So I think sort of the continuation of the tech guy myth, um, the reasons for that are often more social than they are actually artistic. These large-scale technology-based projects, um, the kinds of things that would capture a lot of media attention or critical attention, are often very costly and they require institutional buy-in. So historically, I think men have had more access to those institutions, to museums, galleries, universities, you know, wealthy collectors, and so on, which has allowed them to obtain greater visibility. I also think it's a question of who's telling the story, you know, the academics and the critics who are actually writing about the art of their time. And here's Christiane Paul on how we can continue to honor women trailblazers in art, technology, and history. There is such a rich history of women and technology that I would say the continuation of the tech guy myth is really the result of complex cultural systems that are very difficult to rewrite, and we have to make a concerted effort to do so. So when it comes to both the tech world and the art world, leading positions are often held by men. And we need to put more emphasis onto diversity, equity, inclusion in general, and get more women into these roles so that they really highlight the accomplishment. Right now, I would say it's on us telling the history and giving these women credits 
rather than getting more women into the profession because they're there. <laughs> they are working and they have always been working, but they haven't been acknowledged enough. So right now I would say it's really on us to rewrite history, create the archives and highlight the accomplishments of all of these women who have been there. And in general, I also think that women artists are very good in trying to rewrite that history and also bringing more attention to their predecessors and the pioneers of the medium. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. It was edited by Hannah Hefman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. Special thanks to Jennifer Snyder for her narration and Marjorie Justice Antonio for her research contributions. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website, aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.